Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. The Oireachtas Joint Committee on the Future Funding of Domestic Water Services circulated a draft report this week with solutions to the water charges problem. The proposed solutions seem to solve the political problems around water charges, but will there be enough money to invest in our creaking water infrastructure? And will the European Commission accept our latest fudge as legal? And if they don't, will any politician care? Because the legal process on fining us is a long-term problem when we have short-term problems to solve. On the line, Paul Melia is the Environment Editor of the Irish Independent and Gary Fitzgerald is a Barrister and Director of the Irish Centre on European Law. Paul Melia, can you tell us what proposals are in this draft report, please? Okay, so essentially the 20-strong Oireachtas Committee, which has been obviously tasked to look at how domestic water services are going to be funded, uh, its, its report basically um, suggests that there will be some kind of a levy imposed on people for, what, for excessively using water. So in other words, what they're saying is the, the water regulator will set an amount that each household of, of free water each household can, is entitled to use. The regulator then will add another figure to that that's expected to be 70% above that level. If you're found to be using more than 70% water than the average household, you can be hit with some kind of a charge or a fine. Now, what they're going to do is that they will give you six months, basically, to sort out the problem. Irish Water will know that you're using it, and they will send you a letter and say you've got six months to sort it out. If it's a leakage uh, problem, so a leak in your property, there'll be some kind of financial incentive there to get you to help you repair the works. Uh, but then after that six-month period, if really nothing has changed and you're not doing anything to change your behaviour, then what the committee is saying is that there will be some kind of a, a levy introduced. Now, there's a couple of other bits and pieces in the report as well. Uh, all new bills will be required to have meters installed mm-hmm. uh, when they're being constructed. Um, government will be told to incentivize people to take up meters. So in other words, those who don't have a household meter right now, government will be told you should make some kind of incentive for those people to get these meters. Then it also talks about the group water schemes. Um, it says that the group water schemes will need funding. Um, and then it also uh, commits, in principle, to holding a referendum on the ownership of Irish Water and the network. So oh, that's yes. the guts of what's in it. Okay, right. Well, let's just go through those. Um, funny, actually, we'll take that last one first on the um, the ownership of Irish Water, because it was something I had always been quite suspicious about, that while we absolutely needed uh, a centralised organisation, because having all the different county councils, you know, was leading to so many problems, just in terms of maintenance, never mind a national investment, it did look like it was going to be a very easy entity to uh, sell off in five years' time. And we'd need some way to prevent that happening if the IMF were knocking on our doorstep again. Was that your sense? Did you think that was a realistic option? And do you think a referendum is a sensible way to go about fencing that off or is it over the top? Well, I think I think there's a couple of things. If you look at, you know, a lot of the water network is privatised as is. As in, there's a lot of private companies that have built plants and are running plants for 20-year periods of time. I mean, Rings Ends, the biggest water treatment plant in the country, is run by a private firm on behalf of, of the city council, now Irish Water. So privatization isn't a new thing within the water network. Even if you look at Lewis, for example, at Lewis is operated by a private company. Now, the state owns the infrastructure. It owns the tracks. So that's the difference. I think really the whole thing about privatization of Irish Water, I don't know if anybody had officialed them 
actually believed that it was realistic that somebody was going to buy the Irish Water Network mm-hmm. on the basis that, A, it needs so much uh, investment of 13 billion or so. Um, there's such opposition to domestic water charges. So it's hard to see what the attraction would be to it. But I think having a referendum is very sensible because it just really puts the issue to bed. Now, the trickiness is going to be finding a form of words. What mm. exactly is the referendum going to ask? Is it going to ask, should we own the network? And in which case, what is the network? Are group water schemes in the network? Are they private? Um, does it include um, facilities that are being operated by the private network? Or does it just include the pipes? So finding a form of words would be tricky, but I think it's quite sensible because it just puts the issue to bed that whole thing about privatising the water network. It's gone if it's in a referendum. Now, Ring's End, I thought I knew something about this and I had no idea about that point you've just made, that private companies were operating wastewater treatment plants. Um, Yeah, and and have done, there's quite a few um, across the country. I think there's in or around 500 million, if memory serves, worth of of, uh, facilities across the country that have been designed, built, operated by the private sector. And a lot of new uh, contracts that are going out are on a similar basis. They're essentially Irish Waters contracting somebody to come in and build it and then to operate it on their behalf. So it's not unusual. And Rings End, as I said, Rings End treats in or around 40% of the wastewater in the country that's been operated by uh, Celtic Anglian Water for quite a while. And it's now currently being upgraded. And I think there's still a few years left to run on that contract. So it's not unusual. That's amazing. And was that done because maybe the same as building the roads, that a private company can just get their act together quicker, borrow the money, build it, employ people without having to go through some laborious public sector processes. Is that the idea behind it? No, they're not PPPs. They're not public-private partnerships. They're they're the state funds it. The state pays the upfront cost and it builds it. And it just allows another company to operate it over longer periods of time. So basically what it does is it allows local authorities to freeze up the resources. They don't have to devote staff to certain things. Um, so this is kind of the model that, that's right across there. So it's not a PPP. It's not that private companies are funding upgrades. Yeah. They're not. It's a direct contract. It's the same way you would employ somebody to build your house or what they now do with the schools, some of the schools as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. OK, now let's go back then to this idea of the people who abuse water and use too much water. Obviously, they have to measure that. So does that mean that the process of hugely popular white vans going around installing meters, that that will have to continue because the meters still have to be put in? Well, the committee seems to have the view that it doesn't. Um, There's in or around 860,000 meters already installed. There was to be about 1.1 million. So call it about a quarter of a million that haven't been installed. Yeah. But then on top of that, you have about three, four, three, three or 400,000 apartments. So they were never metered. So effectively, that's what I'm saying. is There's about 650,000 properties with no way to meter the amount of water that's coming into them. So the committee seems to have the view that you can get a lot of your information about uh, wastage and about excessive use through bulk meters. Now, a bulk meter basically records the amount of water going into a larger geographical area. So in other words, it could be uh, it could be 5,000 properties, it could be 200 properties, whatever the case may be. So Irish Water know exactly how much water goes in, and then they can also track exactly how much water comes out through the, the wastewater system. So in other words, if they, they could find, if there's a lot of water going in, but there's not a lot of water going out, mm. then there's leaks there. So there's water being consumed uh, at very large amounts. So basically, the committee seems to have the view, and it is possible 
to find the leaks uh, manually without using meters. But I think Irish Water would make the point it's much easier to do them with domestic meters. And this perhaps is why the committee is kind of fudging a little bit and saying, well, all new bills will have to have meters installed um, and the government will have to incentivize people to take up meters. So that may be why, how they're going to try and get around this. Um, but effectively, it is more difficult to find leaks or to track people's individual consumption without a meter. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But the committee seems convinced that somehow Irish Water will be able to do it. Mm, it doesn't seem likely, does it? If you've got big apartment blocks, you'd never be able to tell who is the person having 50 showers a day or whatever it is. You no. know, it would just be impossible to identify somebody actually wasting water in that circumstance. Yeah, next to impossible, I would think. Mm. I did write a column on this and I quoted some ancient German king at the start of it. Had I been present at the creation, I would have given the Lord some better advice for the better running of the world. <laughs> and you would love if 15 years ago they had said all new bills automatically put meters in, all new apartments. It would have been so easy at the time. And there was just that denial. When did this uh, Water Framework Services Directive first come in? Was it 2003 or something? 2000. 2000. Imagine if then we had taken this on board and done it right. It would have been unbelievable. Okay, now, so so we don't think it's particularly likely they're going to be able to identify all the, the wastage. Um, this issue then of a fine um, for those who are wasting the water. So Fianna Fáil, I believe, started mentioning the Water Services Act of 2007 and that there's some existing mechanism in that by which people um, could be fined. Can you fill us in on that? Well, I think the Act just um, just talks about, you know, wastage of water and, and being prosecuted on that. Um, so there is kind of, there is, there is legislation there. Now, in terms of the actual fines, I'm not sure what they are, but I know that the, the, the legislation has never really been used before. But it seems to be that... Um, that there's a case there that Fianna Fáil are certainly of the view that there's, it would just require amending that legislation, basically, that would allow um, the, the, the state, I guess, to prosecute or, or to allow for fines, I think, for those who waste water. Basically, um, the suggestion being it could be um, fines of up to €5,000 or three months' imprisonment, I think, is the figure uh, under the Act. But again, we're not quite sure what would need amending in it to bring us into line with what Europe seems to have a view, which is basically if you cause pollution through your wastewater that comes out of your house, you must pay for it. Fianna Fáil seems to have a view the, the 2007 Water Services Act will do the trick on that with some amendments. Fine Gael, I think, is a little bit more circumspect and says we're not quite sure. We may have to go back and take legal advice on it. Mm. And that's the other thing in all of this, the European Commission, and we'll have Gary Fitzgerald in just a second on that. So... Is it the case then that there would be no separate, even flat charge to Irish Water or the government for any of this, that our water would be in fun, would funded out of general income tax? Is that uh, the bottom line? That of the... seems to be what's going to come out. Effectively, that Irish Water will have one customer, which is the state, and the state will buy water on behalf of every citizen in the country, and it will be paid for it through general taxation. And then whatever borrowings government decides or equity government decides to put into Irish water and whatever it can raise itself then on the bond markets for particular projects. It can borrow um, money already. The difficulty has been that it's just been short-term finance, so it refinances every year, which is obviously more expensive. Um, so Irish water really wants to have 
a revenue stream of its of its own so that it can go to the market and say, look, yeah. we want to borrow five billion. Every year we get two hundred and fifty million water charges. Now what Sinn Fein have suggested on that is that you enter into some kind of a long term contract uh, where the state agrees with Irish Water that it's going to buy its services, it's going to buy its water, and it's going to guarantee it a payment of two hundred and fifty million a year every year. So Sinn Fein seems to have the view then that that could be sufficient for international lenders to give money to the utility because there is that ring fence funding. That brings us then to the point that there was a fear that if Irish Water didn't have its own independent revenue stream, then there would be insufficient funds available to spend the money on the infrastructure that we need. That if there was another downturn, if there are cutbacks, the government would just cut the money to Irish Water because it's easier than cutting money to the kids who need respite care. Yes. Uh, so what's your view on the sustainability of that Sinn Féin solution, that the government guarantees a payment to Irish Water? Well, I think it's only $250 million, so it's only the domestic funding. I mean, it, it costs about a billion euro a year to run the network to, to keep the water flowing and the wastewater being treated. So Irish Water will always have to have that money because if they don't have the money, the plants will stop producing water. Um, now, that cost will obviously come down over time, but the real difficulty is the capital investment program. Irish Water says about $13 billion is needed to be spent on the network. Uh, it's going to spend, I think, about $3.5 billion between 2015 and 2021 on various upgrades. So it's a commitment of in around $600-$700 million a year on the capital program. So if you're relying on government to spend that kind of money, where effectively you're not going to get opportunities to go out and open new wastewater treatment plants or drinking water plants because a lot of it's just going to be you know, upgrading and improving what's already there. It's going to be replacing mains and so on. History, I guess, has shown us that no government is good at spending the kind of boring money on maintenance. Yeah. For example, in 2011, when Fine Gael, uh, came to power, there was a backlog of repairs across the road network of in or around $3.7 billion. That figures at about $10 billion now because we've had severe winters and all the rest. Yeah. But basically, the money hasn't been spent, so therefore the problem gets worse. That's the problem that Irish Water finds itself in. And when you ask the parties, will they commit to that kind of money, six, seven hundred billion a year, most won't give you a straight answer and commit to it. And it's perhaps best um, exemplified in the Dáil Committee, the Department of Finance were in, and they were asked this question, what do you think about this thing of ring-fencing money? And they said, no, it's a bad idea. It limits the government um, in future years if there is a difficulty, as you said, to spend that kind of money. So unless you get all the parties to agree, every year we're going to stick six, seven hundred million a year into the capital program, there's absolutely no guarantee that the works that are needed will take place. But Irish Water, if it did have its own source of revenue, there's a little bit more guarantee on it because the, the, the regulator is looking at Irish Water and tracking what they're doing and agreeing their spending plans. So that's the real problem with, with the government going back to essentially funding everything in the network, that you just don't get the certainty that the works that we need will actually be carried out. Right. OK, well, look, I'll ask you one more question. You know, I so I live in the country, so we have our own well. We've paid for our own wastewater treatment system. We spend thousands putting that in. We spend several hundred every year um, maintaining it. And between people like ourselves and people on group schemes, and we'll be talking to someone from the Earn uh, group scheme in a minute, 
there was a political acceptance, certainly outside the cities, that this is normal. This is what you do. There were also a reasonable proportion of people who did pay their water rates, you know, and they didn't like it, but they did write the cheque to Irish Water. Do you think was it politically feasible for the government to stand by rates and face down the protests and the populism? Or do you think politically they just had to abandon it and that this mess, such as it is, is the only politically acceptable solution? Well, you know, what is it, 65 or 66 percent of people paid an Irish water bill, yeah. whether all or some of them. And you're right, 400,000, I think, or so are on group water schemes. They pay their bills. So certainly on, on those metrics alone, the vast majority of people pay for water or have paid for water. The problem, I think, is that water charges were kind of a tax too far. If, if the one for me that people should have gone to the streets, streets on was the property tax. Property tax, you get nothing for it. You can have a giant pothole outside your house. You pay your property tax. The council is not obliged to fill in the giant pothole. At least with water, you can see where the money is going and it's going to the network. But the problem is the household charge was introduced before the, the water charges. And I think when the water charges came in, people had just had enough. And even though 66% of people paid, one in three didn't. And the one in three weren't all people that just don't want to pay for anything. The one in three were people... With, with families who worked, who were employers, who were self-employed, who, you know, all of that, so right across the spectrum, who just had an enormous problem with this one more tax. I think politically, Sinn Féin um, and the left, the left in particular stole the march on the main parties on this, you know, Paul Murphy and Richard Boyd Barrett and all, all that, that group. Sinn Féin then started playing catch-up pretty quick. Fianna Fáil then said, well, look, Sinn Féin are at it. Um, they're stealing our thunder and stealing our people, so they went at it as well. Um, so really, Fine Gael, I think, and Labour in the last government were just left in the position that all the other parties were against them because it was politically popular. Was it the right decision? I think if they had done it better, if they had taken their time with it, mm-hmm. if they had given Irish Water five years or seven years to set itself up and to come back with a plan that took longer to implement and, and they had the kind of knowledge that they have now, it was all rushed and it was all rushed too quick. Um, so we just ended up in this unholy mess now where we kind of don't really have any kind of a system from what the draft documents seem to be saying. Obviously, that could change, but that basically we don't have the big question answered, which is how are we going to fund the capital works that we need to spend the money on to improve the network? And with this this deal as it stands, we don't seem to have a clear answer on that. Okay, Paul Melia, Environment Editor with the Irish Independent. And when we come back after the break, Gary Fitzgerald from the Irish Centre for European Law will be telling us if any of this is actually legal. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And now in studio, I have Gary Fitzgerald. He's a barrister and director of the Irish Centre on European Law. Gary, before the break there, Paul Melia was outlining to us the various political solutions that have been proposed to try and solve this uh, water charges problem. Now, maybe it'll be politically acceptable. Maybe they'll get around the various financial problems that Paul was outlining for us. But is it legal? Can you take us through um, the legal framework for all of this? Sure. Well, well, uh, Paul said the big question was how do we fund Irish water? There's a second big question is how do we structure the payment so that it's lawful under European law? And, uh, you know, we stopped having autonomy for whatever extent we had autonomy in 1973 when we joined the European Union or 1974. Uh, And European Union law is supreme over national law. So there is a directive here, the Water Framework Directive. And any binding provisions in that directive are binding on the Irish state. And we can 
howl and scream and pretend that they're not. But the reality is that every EU lawyer and every lawyer will tell you that they are binding on the state. So what's really important is what the provisions of the Water Framework Directive say in relation to water charges. Now, they don't mandate water charges. They don't say we have to have uh, water charges in the scheme that we had with Irish water that has since been abandoned. But what they do say is that we have to have a water pricing policy and that water pricing policy has to comply with the environmental objectives of the directive, which is in essence, we conserve water, we don't pollute and, and if we do pollute, the polluter pays. So that's crystal clear from the directive. Uh, how we achieve that is entirely up to us. And, and I've read the Fianna Fáil opinion uh, that was published and they're right to say that how we do that is entirely up to us. Uh, but I cannot see how we can achieve the objectives of the directive, which is that the polluter pays for excessive pollution or for excessive water usage without having water meters on every house. Uh, the idea that we would have some form of court-based fine system for excessive usage strikes me as being uh, impossible to operate without water meters on in every individual house because you can't prosecute somebody unless you can prove that they've done it. Of course, yeah. Uh, and secondly, uh, it strikes me as being a, a bad idea to centralise enforcement at the district court level and effectively politicise district court judges who are now going to be putting people in jail for using water. Are there going to be defences that you run? Are we going to see appeals? Are we going to see uh, a whole lot of legal action. I mean, every lawyer will tell you that the, the best case scenario is to avoid court and the worst case scenario is to end up in court. So if you're designing a system, in my view, you should design the system that keeps the courts out of it as much as possible. So one thing that occurred to me when I was looking at Article 9 of the Water Framework Directive uh, is this question of established practice. And just explain about Article 9, because that's Sure. Yeah. Uh, Article 9 is uh, entitled uh, Recovery of Costs for Water Services. And the key provision in Article 9 is the first, the second sentence of the first paragraph in great uh, legal, legalese. And it says, Member States shall ensure by 2010 that water pricing policies provide adequate incentives for users to use water resources efficiently and contribute to the environmental objectives of the directive. So that's what it says. And that's fairly clear. Um, if you have an established practice of not charging for water and you can show that that established practice complies with the objectives of the directive, you don't have to charge for water. In my view, we lost the established practice when we introduced water charges. But even if we didn't lose it, and Fianna Fáil's position is that we didn't, and even if we didn't lose it, we can only rely on that established practice exemption if we can show that the established practice meets the objectives of the directive. And you can't do that, I don't think, if you don't have any knowledge over who's using too much water or any controls over who's using too much water or any consequences or penalties. It would appear to me that the most straightforward and simple system is to treat water like we treat electricity or, or natural gas. You have a meter on every house, people pay for what they use, uh, and uh, I understand, and the directive is also uh, clear in this, water is a different resource. It's not like electricity simply because it's like air and food, you die without it. Um, so we can have a free allowance, we can have a very generous allowance, but we have to have some mechanism of controlling pollution and targeting that control at those who, who pollute. Now, other excuses I've heard are, so everyone's obsessed with water in, but actually it's far more expensive to treat wastewater. And based on that, no European country has a system whereby uh, domestic users are contributing the full cost of treating the water. Everybody's only paying a bit. 
So everybody's in breach of the directive. Does that stand up? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that that means that everybody is in breach of the directive. We don't have to have the the directive doesn't say that the user must pay the exact price of pollution, but it must whatever system the member state has in in place must respect the objectives of the directive, which is that we tar- we we recognize water as a scarce resource that our uh, water catchment areas are fragile and sensitive environmental areas that pollution is a significant problem and that we have a system that achieves those objectives. A very harsh system would be to pay the exact cost in direct charges for everything that you do. Uh, And, you know, that's kind of like the American system of low centralised taxation, high individual charges. Mm. We could do that. If you're going to do that, you'd have to significantly drop all our general taxes so that we could afford to pay for those. Uh, But the EU law, for me, on this is very clear you have to have some method of controlling water consumption and water usage and controlling pollution. And I cannot see how you can do that without a uh, individual water meters outside every house. I never understood, and I believe it originated back in John Gormley's time, why they decided to have centralised installation of meters. Uh, Richard Tall, who was with the SRI at the time, said, if you have a high flat fee, just incentivize people to put in their own meters, you know, that it's a cheaper rate if they put in their own. And meters are 20 quid or something. They're cheap. And I never understood why they went with the big contract. It was so inflammatory and expensive and unnecessary. Have you any insight into that? I mean, I suppose for for full disclosure, I should say that I was a card-carrying member of the Green Party for 10 years. Ending in the time when we were in government with Fianna Fáil, I resigned for a variety of reasons, but I haven't been involved since. I, I wasn't involved at that level in those decisions and I don't know much about them. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't comment on them. And any comments I'd have would simply be as an ordinary person, as any, as opposed to anybody with any expertise on it. OK. Now, um, I was looking around what other European countries do. And Scotland, for example, as far as I can see, has a flat charge. And it's based kind of on your property tax. So whatever council tax band you're in, then you'd pay according to that. It doesn't seem to be linked to usage. However, it is a separate payment. It is to an entity called Scottish Water. And they seem to be managing that okay. Is that reasonably in line with the directive? I mean, the directive doesn't say that you have to have a separate entity managing the water at all. Right. We, could, we could pay our water charges to to the local authority. We could pay it to the to the revenue like we do our property tax. That, that That's not in the directive at all. All the, the directive cares about uh, is that whatever system we put in place controls the use uh, and excessive use of water. It doesn't seem to me from how you described it that the Scottish system does that. Mm. I mean, if we linked it to our property tax, people in Dublin 4 would pay more for their water and people in the country wouldn't. And there's no connection between usage. I mean, sure, you could have a big house in Dublin 4, but equally you could have a small apartment in Dublin 4 that's 10 times more expensive than a big house in the country. So there's no connection there. It might be possible they have a system for measuring that I wasn't able to divine. Um, now, what was I, the other thing? I would thing? like oh, yeah. to say, though, that... Uh, one of the weaknesses of the European legal order is the question of enforcement. So it's, it appears to me that we are in breach of this directive. And so therefore we get into what are the consequences of breaching the directive. Now, if you're in breach of national law, there are some, I don't know, what's the figure? Is it fifty to 60,000 employees of the state who are in charge of enforcing the laws of the state? There's the entire Garda Shia Khanna for criminal law, 
there's the environmental uh, health officers in the local authorities for environmental law, revenue commissioners for tax law, social welfare inspectors and so on. So a whole range of individuals in charge of enforcing national law. The European Commission is in charge of enforcing European Union law across the entire European Union. And for it to do its job properly and catch all the breaches and enforce them properly, you would have to have a staff of you know, millions, and it doesn't. It's a large organisation, but it's simply not staffed to catch all the problems. So we know as lawyers that uh, you can get away with breaching EU law, and unless it's a big breach, um, then you're going to get away with it for a long time. But when the Commission does decide to take enforcement action, and it is indicated in this area that it, is, that it will take enforcement action, it's kind of like an, an unstoppable juggernaut, a very slow and inefficient and cumbersome one, but an unstoppable one non- nonetheless. And I guess that's where maybe the politicians are saying, well, we've a problem now that we've to deal with. We'll worry about that later. I mean, you, you said in your introduction, I think, exactly what's happening. They're solving a political problem by creating a legal problem further down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, they've clearly they've taken advice in this and they know that the legal problem is going to be at some point the state will be told that you're in breach of the directive and therefore you're going to be hit with a lump sum penalty or a daily fine. But there have been cases of, in the past where, for example, Greece was hit with a daily penalty for an illegal dump on one of the Greek islands and uh, it simply didn't pay the penalty. And then they entered into negotiations with the Greek government that was a net uh, beneficiary of EU funds. And they said, well, if you don't give us our small bit of money, we'll hold back the large bit of money we owe you. And there was a deal done where they paid a bit less. But at the end of it all, the dump was still there. So it's a very inefficient method of of enforcement. If we simply refuse to to comply with the directive, there isn't a huge amount that the Commission can do other than hit us with this daily fine. And it's bad for, you know, political respect in Europe. But, you know, Europe is preoccupied by some fairly significant problems, much bigger than the Irish domestic water problem. the shame of it is, if it was a stupid law, you know, or had a stupid end, you know, you might say, well, to hell with it. But this is actually, a, it's a good directive trying to achieve good things. Like the moral thing to do was to get on with it in the year 2000. No, and I agree completely again with what Paul said about, you know, people picked a fight over this, over water charges. Um, and, and for me, it was the wrong fight. I mean, it'll be no surprise to listeners that I pay my water charges as somebody who was in the Greens. Uh, you know, nobody likes paying tax, but of all the taxes I pay, I thought this was one that I was more happy than others to pay because I saw what I was getting for it. And I also knew that it was controlling my consumption. And there was that brief period of time when we had water charges and my consumption of water changed. And I'm very careful about water usage, but, you know, it did change. And then when they dropped, you know, it just, it changed again. I remember, um, as I said, I have a well at home, so this didn't affect me directly. And yet I began to become conscious of what I was doing anyway, letting the tap run, rinsing a few dishes and things like that. And I was thinking... This is a waste of water. I shouldn't be doing this. And it was that consciousness began. Now, that's something actually that Sinn Féin have said too, is that raising consciousness can encourage people to... <laughs> yeah, but, no, no, I mean, look, I also... Look, my, my, my political analysis of this is now... I'm not an expert in that. Yes. I'm, I'm a legal expert. But, but my view is, is that the people opposing water charges did it primarily, for me, at a very opportunistic level. And therefore, all the arguments that they come out afterwards are built on the fairly dodgy foundation of an opportunistic uh, objection. I mean, 
we don't control speeding on the roads by raising consciousness about speeding on the roads. We control speeding on the roads by putting in a very strict system of enforcement whereby people know, or they're supposed to know, that if they break the law, there are consequences. I can't see with this draft report how there will be any significant consequences um, to excessive usage. And if there aren't significant consequences and if it's not enforced, we'll be back before the European courts time and again. Uh, And although the state might not end up paying the fine, it's going to end up paying the lawyers involved in it vast amounts of money. And so we're wasting public time and effort with something that for me is relatively straightforward. For me, it's the right thing to do. But that aside, legally under the directive, it's the legal thing that we have to do. Gary Fitzgerald, thanks a million for joining us this morning. And that was Gary Fitzgerald, Director of the Irish Centre on European Law. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Mairead Sheridan and she's manager of the Earn Valley Group Water Scheme. And they've been paying for water forever. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. We've heard from Paul Melia from the Irish Independent and Gary Fitzgerald, Director of the Irish Centre on European Law. But now I'm talking to Mairead Sheridan. She's manager of the Earn Valley Group Water Scheme. And of course, while a lot of this business of charging for water is new to urban people in the country, we've been paying for our water forever. Mairead, tell me about the Earn Valley Scheme and how that works. Sure. Earn Valley Group Water Scheme is one of the largest group water schemes in Ireland. And uh, it was born as a merger of two former schemes, the Brusky Killadoon and the the Garty Law scheme. So it stretches from Killashandra Town and County Cavan right through to the Cavan Longford border to almost at Granard, right up to towards Kinelec and back towards Balanya, towards Cavan. So and this is all my home territory, yes. by the way, I should say. My mother's from this part of the country. So our yeah. network will be about 240 kilometres long. And uh, all these schemes were formed in the 1970s when the rural farmers got into dairying and milking and they required more water and the old problem of carrying the buckets of water from the well wasn't sufficient then. So they became together and they formed these cooperatives. And back in those times, volumes of water was all that concerned anybody. And the housewife then, she got water pumped to the kitchen, so that made her life easier. So that was fine for 20 or 30 years. Till and sorry, when was that now, roughly? In the 70s. The, the 70s. 1970s. Yeah, yeah wasn't it late? are formed around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as time went on then and the EU directives came in, then quality water became an issue and meeting regulations became an issue. So all these schemes then had a lot of investment to make to bring their water up to the standard required. And these DBO contracts came in, design, build, operate, where it was funded and a company was put in to run it for a 20-year period of time to meet the standards. So the group scheme then knew that they had this company in place. They were going to provide the water at the standard to, and the members had nothing further to worry about then. So the group scheme's responsibility thereafter is in um, providing it out through the pipework to the consumer's home, charging them the rate that's necessary to cover the costs of paying that contractor to run that plant and maintaining your network and keeping some reserve in place for future for what you might face. Now, and are they metered? Are your customers yes, metered? Yes. Right. So are. how does that work? That worked tremendously well. Um, you know, from its inception, there were no meters up until, in our case, 2007 is when we really kicked off with the metering. Some schemes had started a few years prior to that. Um, it brought our overall consumption down by more than half. Wow. Because, you know, you speak to somebody about leaks and they all say, oh, I've no leaks. But how can you quantify what you're using and know what you are or are not wasting? You know, we had situations where farmers would have pipes from the house gone on out towards the land and out towards a field and a drinker. They might bend that pipe back and tie a bit of twine around it. They might say, oh, I'll leave it there. I'll run down to the shed and I'll come back later. So there was obvious wastage being happening everywhere, you know. 
even in the household, like we've all seen the situation where the toilet's running a little bit at the back and you say, yeah, I must do something about that. The toilet uses 13 litres of water in a flush. Gosh. You know, one drop from your kitchen sink, that one drop that you just occasionally see because you didn't tighten it enough, that's 40 metres cubed a year. You know, people don't realise till you put the stopper in the sink how that accumulates. You know, the running when you're on a cold drink of water instead of going to the fridge for the jug you'll just run it till it gets cold and put the glass underneath it you know we've all developed the habits that you know without a metre to say gosh I didn't really realise that's the volume I'm using so for us we felt the metre was the consumer's friend because you were getting charged for what you really were using not based upon some sort of a flat fee that somebody estimated in good faith. Now, so the government and this committee keep proposing um, amounts of water that people can use for free and they've estimated what it might be. Is that how your system operates? Yes. um, What we did is we brought in a certain amount of free water for all households on the scheme. And uh, we just went with guidelines at the time, you know, as what should this be? Mm. So we started off with 90 metres cubed per year. So that's one metre cubed is a thousand litres. So 90 of those for the entire 12 month period. And we found that as a result of that, more than a quarter of our people were not using that. We had a quarter of our people who had no bill to pay as a result of giving them 90 in the year. So we found then that that was rather too much. So... um, you know, we changed that a few years ago and as a result of that now we brought it down by one third to 30 metres cubed. Mm. And now just 12% of our people don't pay for water. And I think that committee is saying a normal country household will use, oh yeah, 100 metres cubed every six months. Yes. So their bill will come in at about 100, 160 euro a year or three euro a week. Is that yes, you? Yes, that's right. what we find. Yeah, we find that the average household is really using about four metres cubed in an entire week. A two adult, two children household. Right. And I wonder, did the committee take that into account when they were calculating what well, might be used? Yes, it's probably more than that, I suppose. They would be more generous in the allowance, you know, but we're just finding that from an average in, in reality to what we're So you've been looking on then at these protests and people outraged at the notion of having to pay for water. Have you any sympathy with them or what's your view of it? I suppose initially the country folk wouldn't have sympathy for our city cousins (laughs) uh, when we see this in relation to water alone because um, I will accept the argument that you're not just paying for water in but you're also paying for water out and that's a substantial part of the problem. But we see like, you know, well, why should the country folk have to pay to get theirs there and the city folk expects to get it for nothing, you know. So we did think that was rather droll, I suppose. But the metre we feel is fair. If you're not using excessive, your charge won't be excessive. Now, um, so Ono Bryn was out on Thursday morning across various media suggesting uh, various solutions. And I, I happened to bump into him and I said, well, you know, what about us country people? We've been paying all the time and we haven't um, objected to it. And they have a proposal for that. They said, yeah, it would be unfair if city people weren't paying anything and country people continued to pay. So therefore, we think you should get something back. (laughs) So there would be some kind of tax break or subvention or something like that. So while that would be lovely, it seems to me that that's actually making the problem even worse 
because then no one's paying. And um, there's huge investment required in these group water schemes. There have been problems with health and pollution, you know, because they're uh, needing investment too. So would you welcome getting some money back or would you prefer to see some other solution? Well, I suppose we'd always welcome any funding that's forthcoming, you know, because to try now to do anything with infrastructure that's in place 40 years is going to be quite expensive. And uh, there is always pipes leaking. Let nobody think that they're perfect, you know, no matter when they're done. You know, some people would even say that brand new pipeline after a number of weeks and months will start to lose 12 to 20 percent straight away. Really? You know, and you think that surely we shouldn't have a problem with that for 10, 20 years, you know. So fittings and joints, you know, will fail and things will go wrong. And out in rural Ireland with the roads the way they are in boggy areas and there's bounce on the roads with heavy lorries passing over, all that friction is having an impact underneath the infrastructure, you know. So there'll always be repairs required and maintenance required. So sure, we'd be delighted to see any funding coming our way that would help us to keep our existing network in place. And, you know, should we have extensions to rural areas of new houses, we want to be able to provide water to them also. Now, what's your relationship with Irish Water? I mean, are you an independent republic or have you had to form a relationship with them? We have no direct relationship with Irish Water at all. Um, Group water schemes are privately owned cooperative societies. They're registered as friendly societies and they operate wholly by themselves. The only time that a group water scheme might have any interaction with Irish water is if they supply some water to them, perhaps for a local village that's adjacent to them. Or, you know, we have been dealing with the county councils with relation to any funding for capital works that we might want. So if that gets passed on to Irish water in the future, then schemes may have direct contact with Irish water, but otherwise no. Now, one of the justifications for setting up Irish water was that it would bring together all these different entities, that you had county councils, you know, they might fix a pipe on one side of the border, but it's not on the other side of the border. Or you have bizarre situations where county councils are selling water to each other. There are all kinds of crazy things going on that aren't necessarily visible to us. Would it make sense for Irish water to start taking over group water schemes too, that that would aid a more coherent national investment or do you think you'd be better off for your customers staying independent and getting funds directly from government when you need them yeah we'd be very adamant about that that we remain by ourselves and for what reason because these people set about to create this group scheme themselves 40 years ago when the government and the cities were not interested in how rural people were getting water they put in huge personal investment themselves every one of those households back then All the committees have been formed by people who've been working voluntary all this time and still are. And they feel they are the best ones in place to look after their own local people, do not have this decision made at some higher level and some other area in the country where they don't realise the true factors that are involved locally. And our members are getting the best value for money because of all that contribution by all those people who are invested in it personally. And it's not a financial issue. Like in our case, we are charging 80 cent for a metre cubed. Irish water's 185 and that's only the water going in, so you're paying 370 for your water in and out. You know, by comparison, nobody could match the value that group schemes can give to their members. You know? Okay, and finally then, a quick word on pollution. There have been ex- uh, concerns expressed about the quality of water in some of the group schemes. What's the quality of water like in Erne Valley? You know, you're starting off with a rural lake and it's in a basin in a farming district, so it is naturally polluted. 
and it, we keep monitoring that lake every month and we're keeping stats on that and we can see at different times it gets an influx you know be it bad weather and rain or farming activities around but also the householders the septic tank people have a part to play in that mm. also we're always down in the farmers but they're not always the only ones yeah you know so we do see that that is there but if you were to stop that in the morning it would take decades for your lake to recover Yeah I have to say we were delighted when they brought in the inspection scheme for septic tanks because people just didn't know what they were doing of course on the other hand we reckon we were all reared on E. coli and we have fantastic immune systems so there is that (laughs) (laughs) Okay well look Maureen Sheridan thanks a million for joining me this morning and to my previous guest that's it for this morning thanks to Stephen Jordan who produced Aidan McKelvey Researched and thank you for listening Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108.